Well, it's over. Where are we now, now that all the delegates have gone home from Glasgow and COP26 is finished? For the last two or three weeks, I've felt as though all the topics covered in my 360-odd podcast episodes have been thrown at me all at once. Now the big United Nations Climate Conference is over, I still feel overwhelmed. Hello, I'm Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 19th of November. And yes, I have got a cold. Billed by some as the last chance saloon. The final opportunity to take action to get the climate emergency under control before it gets out of control. What exactly is the outcome of COP26? That's the topic of today's episode. I'll start with a review of comments in the press and close with a conversation with a colleague who actually went to Glasgow. Opinions are mixed. Only a week into the conference, Greta Thunberg was writing it off. It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. It should be obvious that we cannot solve the crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place, she said. The World Socialist website was equally pessimistic. As the Global Climate Summit COP26 drags out to its miserable end this week in Glasgow, Scotland, the major capitalist powers and the banks and corporations that call the shots in national or world politics have largely failed in their efforts to use the summit to provide a semblance of progress in resolving the global climate emergency. When we reached the end of the week and concluded negotiations on the Saturday, even conference president Alok Sharma apologised that things had not gone far enough. At the last minute, China and India had urged an amendment to the text, replacing phasing out coal with phasing down coal. Others saw this as progress of sorts because coal had never been mentioned in conference documentation before. Sharma said the agreement was weaker than hoped, but denied it was a failure and said it was a historic achievement. He said China and India would have to explain themselves to weaker countries. Is this what the end of the world looks like? asked James Dyson of Exeter University in the I newspaper. Greenpeace called the agreement weak and meek. Elsewhere, it was generally agreed that the conclusions did not amount to enough to keep temperature rises to 1.5 degrees centigrade. 2.4 degrees was mentioned, but 1.5 degrees was still a clear target. The Economist saw some grounds for optimism. It was agreed that NDCs, individual countries' nationally determined contributions to emissions reductions, would be updated by COP27 next year, at least as far as 2030 targets were concerned, rather than in 2025. Without this commitment, The Economist believed that the 1.5 degree target would have been dead. There were complaints about the promised payments of $100 billion a year to weaker countries to help them adapt to the climate crisis. Promises were fine, but the money was just not coming through. Leaders of these weaker nations urged that this money was not charity, but compensation for the damage caused by centuries of pollution from the developed nations. The Guardian reported that Pacific representatives and negotiators have condemned the outcome of the COP26 meeting as watered down and a monumental failure that puts Pacific nations in severe existential danger, with one saying that Australia's refusal to support funding for loss and damage suffered by Pacific countries was a deep betrayal of the region. 
In a major speech on the Monday following COP26, Prime Minister Johnson was uncharacteristically realistic about the outcome of the conference. Why did so many world leaders come to Glasgow, he asked. They came in those numbers because the scale of the crisis is unlike anything we have ever seen. An existential threat of man-made climate change that promises to destroy our environment as we know it, to rob our children and descendants of beauty and species and habitat at an unprecedented pace, and to plunge humanity into a new dark ages, and I'm not joking, with warfare for basic resources such as water and vast and uncontrollable mass movements of people. He went on. And on Saturday night, after years and months of work, the nations of the earth came together and they forged the Glasgow Climate Pact. And of course, that deal will and must have its critics and detractors from one side of the argument or the other. And we must be honest with our children. And we must confess that this deal, this pact, won't do it alone. Glasgow won't stop climate change. Glasgow won't prevent the heating of the planet that is now baked in. But Glasgow can still help us to slow that warming down. What we have in our hands is now a roadmap, detailed, waymarked with milestone after milestone. And for the first time in history, humanity has agreed to move beyond coal. We will push for more ambitious goals, stronger plans and better implementation. And so we further narrow that gap to 1.5 degrees. And you can see how all sorts of things have come together in the minds of the leaders of the world. There is the data about what is actually happening. The storms, the floods, the fires, the swarms of locusts. There is the ever-growing clamour from their electorates. He's absolutely right that we must push for more ambitious goals, stronger plans and better implementation. Let's see it happen. And have we really got those detailed worked out plans? There may well be a growing clamour from electorates, particularly in those nations which are already being devastated by the effects of climate crisis. The problem is that governments will generally do what the electorate wants them to do. But I cannot see those in the developed world calling on governments to prevent them from driving their SUVs, from eating meat or from taking long haul flights on holiday. The New Statesman reminded us of power politics. It is also significant that the United States and China were able to agree a bilateral deal about methane emissions, not just because of the threat both countries' emissions pose to our climate, but because the more those two nations talk to one another, the more the risk of a dangerous miscalculation triggering a hot war between the two is reduced. Writing in The Guardian, George Monbiot said, After the failure of COP26, there's only one last hope for our survival. It's too late for incremental change. By mobilising just 25% of people, we can flip social attitudes towards the climate. In other words, we need urgent and radical change, far more draconian than anything coming out of COP26. He quoted research published in the journal Science, which found that a critical threshold was passed when the size of a committed minority reached roughly 25% of the population. At this point, social conventions suddenly flip. Between 72% and 100% of the people in the experiments swung round, destroying apparently stable social norms. He cites the change in attitudes to respect for women and the unpopularity of smoking. But does he really believe that we will change our attitudes to the extent that we will give up those SUVs, long-haul holidays, 
eating meat and all the other things which impact the earth. The problem is that the consequences of the climate crisis are remote, at least for many of us in the developed nations. Why would people protect themselves from a threat they cannot see? All very depressing. But before we hear how my friend Richard Lane found COP26, take a moment to read an article in The Guardian by Rebecca Solnit. It's called 10 Ways to Confront the Climate Crisis Without Losing Hope. It's insightful, it's logical, and I don't believe it's over-optimistic. Don't be pessimistic without knowing the facts, she warns. Don't overlook the massive progress made in both attitudes and technology in just the last decade. The future is not yet written, she says. We are writing it now. And now here's a first-hand account of COP26. I really wanted to talk to you because you're somebody who's had a first-hand experience of going to COP26. There's been a lot of comment about everything that went on. There's big headlines like 25,000 people. But what does it look like when you're there? And first of all, Richard, did you go as a concerned citizen? Did you go as a demonstrator, an activist? Or did you go as a delegate? What took you to COP26? I think concerned citizen... Uh, pretty much covers it. So I went along, uh, yes, to, to protest, but also to participate in the the huge sort of civil society fringe that there is always around these conferences. Uh, there is a thing called the People's Assembly, which is kind of a counter-conference, a social convergence, uh, where ideas are discussed that are a lot more wide-ranging and a lot more radical and often a lot more interesting than the kind of uh, discussions that take place within the official uh, schedule but uh, there's also, I mean, I, I suspect you know, and probably most of your listeners know that there are there is a blue zone, which is the kind of the the authorized area that, that only sort of certified delegates can get into, heavily policed. There's a green zone, which is a, the sort of um, official civil society area where there are um, well, it's a bit like a trade show. There's a lot of stalls from different uh, companies, a lot of talks, and so on. And then around that, there's the whole the wider fringe, which is. Uh, not run by the conference but it's run by civil society around it so lots of um, campaign groups trade unions think tanks and um, protest groups will all put on events around the conference so i wasn't blue zone uh, certified if that's the word i wasn't accredited um, but i was participating in as much of the the rest of it as i could so in the green zone now there are some official events presumably Yes, that's right. There's a whole program of uh, talks. So they range from the the really very kind of uh, uh, very sort of forward thinking to some things which are just out and out greenwash and and just uh, you know vehicles for the sponsors. So there was um there was a a Dettol um, running a hygiene challenge for school children because one of the sponsors is Unilever. So that's you know that those kind of things are on the program as well. And there are, you know, you walk into the green zone and one of the first things you see is a big old Formula E car, you know, a racing car sitting out there. And you kind of think, OK, yeah, this isn't where radical things are going to happen. This is very much, you know, in the mainstream here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the key question, of course, is um, was it a success? Greta Thunberg was saying it was a failure even before it was halfway through. But uh, we now have the benefit of another week. Uh, we've seen the whole thing. On balance, what's your opinion of what happened at COP26? Well, uh, um, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you kind of 
find whatever prejudices you had when you went in being reinforced by it. But um, I will start with something positive, because, uh, which is I think that the unprecedented coverage that it got was really good. So, I mean, it was a very high profile issue here. It did you know, as much to raise uh, awareness of the climate crisis as XR did in the last year or so. Um, uh, and I think that has the possibility of bringing about a lot of positive change. And certainly, you know, in France, that happened after COP21. I was in I was in Paris for that back in 2015. And, there, and, and France in, enacted some pretty good laws after that and did make some positive changes. They banned all um, exploration for hydrocarbons in 2017, you know, after the COP26. So, um, so after COP21. So there is that is, you know, so I don't want to write it off in that sense, but I think it's very hard to look at the the agreement, the pact, the Glasgow Climate Pact and say, well, that's a success. This is this is the thing we need, because I think and I think actually one of the things that I took the most heart from was the fact that Alok Sharma apologized for it at the point when he sort of, uh, you know, when he, he signed it off, when he closed the negotiations, he was he was very clearly unhappy with what had actually happened in the last couple of days. I mean, a lot of countries were very unhappy with it. And, um, and I think, you know, a lot of people claiming it's a success. Well, I mean, that I think undermines that claim. And, you know, the big, the big claims about it. Yes. Okay. It mentions fossil fuels nowadays, which was absolutely incredible that it hadn't up to now, you know, it's, it's, uh, so, so yeah, okay. That's, that's a good thing, but it's kind of only really just getting it back to where it should have been 10 years ago, really. The fact that it should have been identifying the greatest threat to our climate and the fact that it wasn't was really an, in, an indictment of the whole process. There's nothing in there on loss or damage as well. That was something that was in an early draft and it got taken out. And that's something that, um, you know, indigenous voices were in Glasgow are very clearly calling for. And um, that was something I would highlight as well as being a, a, a sort of a, a key part of this whole experience that I had, and I think a lot of people had around this, was that the indigenous voices were very present and very well centred. The um, the People's Summit was very focused on on um, amplifying the voices of the most affected people in areas. MAPA, uh, it was a, an acronym you heard a lot in in that environment. Um, so yeah, I I don't think. As I said, I don't think it, it really, it, we know that it, that it doesn't get us to where we want to go. And we know that it's not enough to actually avert catastrophic climate change. We know that the, um, the, the, the actions that governments have pledged to take, assuming they take them, aren't enough to get us to a position of safety. And um, I think when you couple that with the actual track record, uh, then I don't see much to celebrate here. Um, I would, yes, there was a good article by, uh, Adam Ramsey uh, in in the I think Open Democracy, in which he he, he said that uh, Copenhagen demoralised activists, Paris placated them. It's not the word I'd use. He said Paris placated them, Glasgow radicalised them. So I mean, the way I look at it is that yeah, Glasgow Copenhagen was an out and out failure. It was a, it was a disaster. Paris seemed like it was going. It could have got us back on track. So yeah, okay, people were kind of reasonably happy about it. Uh, that's I would maybe you can say that's placated, but yeah, it was. It felt like maybe maybe we were going to get there. Glasgow, it's it became abundantly clear. No, we haven't made the kind of progress we need to. And um, really, the demands I think of the climate justice movement of the the radicals are, are sort of getting more and more extreme because the situation is so much more so much more um, urgent. And and we, we're seeing, you know, if we'd have. Like, do you remember the Stern report, you know, back in uh, yes. 2006? Yes. So um, making a very kind of compelling argument within the system for why we need to make changes 
and why we need to change the system to avoid the tremendous costs of climate change. And you know, you could have said that well, if we had if we acted on that, then we wouldn't be facing a, such a, a, a sort of a cliff edge now. And now the demands that, that we face, the kind of the, what's required of us, is so significant that it does seem to take an increasingly radical change to society. And I think that on one hand, you have got this climate justice movement, which is looking at what we what is happening and saying no, this whole system needs to be torn down. This whole this whole uh, you know the whole the whole economic structure of our society is not fit for purpose. And whereas it could have evolved to something that might have worked, it's a big question, obviously, if we'd have started changing earlier. But by now, you've got um, radicals saying everything has to change, and the government and business as usual, uh, you know, the government and, and the, the oil companies saying, no, nothing's going to change. Uh, we're just going to buy offsets. We're just going to, we're just going to uh, meet net zero. And this, I think, is another big thing that uh, that, that surprised me in the in the months running up to the conference, that uh, net zero has emerged as a focus for campaigning against. Oh, oh why? Because, um, well, you may have heard this, people have been saying things like, we don't want net zero, we want real zero. And the idea of real zero is very hard to, to uh, unpick. But, um, and Greta Thunberg has said this herself as well. Um, and, but, but the main thing is that by saying net zero, it kind of creates, it makes it into an accounting problem. It says, okay, well, if we can just keep emitting this, but also we can also, uh, you know, come up with negative technologies, offsets and so on, then we can get it to balance out. So it becomes an argument for continued growth, continued growth of the fossil fuel sector. And we know that oil producers are still planning to increase their production by 20%. We know that, and since since 2015, we know we're subsidizing fossil fuels more. Yeah. So the uh, so net zero is, is, is being widely seen as, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a very um, dubious, goal and actually i mean what we should be doing instead is actually setting targets for emissions reductions which is what we've taken the focus off well net zero um itself is going to be extremely difficult to achieve getting any further than that is is well even more extremely difficult to achieve isn't it i mean is is it realistic um uh, and where do we go from here i mean uh, i read an article by george monbiot in the guardian who says tipping points? If we can get twenty-five percent of people to believe in something, it will cause the whole of society to change its attitudes. Now, I fear that's wishful wishful thinking because I don't think even if twenty-five percent of the population believe that people shouldn't drive SUVs or take uh, long-haul flights on a holiday or eat meat or things like that, I don't think that's going to change public perception. I think people are going to hang on to those things for dear life. Um, you know, it, the trouble is it's the invisible enemy. Um, the, the people, the victims are not ourselves, are they? I mean, it's getting close. I mean, Germany lost 200 people in all, all those floods, didn't they? But um, large parts of the developed West are not really seeing anything more than inconvenience. It's, it's the distant parts of the world which are really suffering. Uh, but, of course, it's the, um, it's the Western developed nations that have the power. And if they're not actually being pinched, are we going to be able to persuade people to change? Well, I don't really think the emphasis needs to be on persuading people to change. Um, I, really, I think that the emphasis needs to be on 
changing the system and it's a system which which is subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of uh, 11 million dollars every minute i don't think anyone would defend that i don't think anyone would say that's that's the right way to be doing things but that underpins an awful lot of how we live and um if you know, if that were to be suddenly you know not suddenly but if that were up for discussion if that was something that we might be able to change then we might start seeing some real uh, you know real redirection because there is an awful lot of money being spent propping up the current system which could be spent on changing it and if this if that sort of money was spent on changing it suddenly a lot of the changes we want to, that we would want people to make in their lives might become a lot easier so this is okay. another thing another big idea of course of this of the moment now and certainly one that's featured very strongly in the conference was that of the green new deal yes and um that's sort of that's kind of emerged as the alternative you know to business as usual is the green new deal and um and that is a it's a it's a fairly ill-defined concept i think there's a really good article in the guardian uh by uh i think it was uh, uh Chakraborty, i think um which was uh saying that basically you know it's one it's ill-defined it seems to be just a grab bag of everything that progressives want which i think is a fair accusation and two um it is a, a top-down sort of large state solution which risks having um people which risks people having stuff done to them rather than participating in a change and that is certainly a, a massive um a massive issue and i think that's where what you're talking about uh, expecting people to change uh you know is, is really a key concern because um and, and yeah one of my main one of the big feelings i had coming away from this conference was really one of feeling very demotivated because as I say, on one hand, you've got the climate justice uh, argument, the, the, the radicals saying everything needs to change. And so it's it's a protest movement. It's a very, very adversarial protest movement. What is going on now is wrong. And on the other hand, you've got a you've got the kind of the oh, no, we don't no one wants to change. We just keep going and we just have to buy offsets and we'll just plant more trees, which is and it's I mean, an argument which is obviously wrong, you know, that uh, that uh, the, the, the there was a deforestation that was one of another big outcome was there was this uh pledge to protect forests came out yeah. of it and uh yeah. so they're gonna the uh all the cop 26 signatories together we're going to spend 12 billion pounds i think it is 12 billion pounds on on uh, no it's 12 billion dollars i beg your pardon it's 12 billion dollars on um forest related climate finance meanwhile mm -hmm. you've got our government subsidizing drax to burn biomass uh, and by the time that that contract runs out, they will have spent ten billion pounds, which is about the same amount of money, on uh, promoting or supporting deforestation. So, you know, the, the, the reduction of primary forests. So, you know, the fact is that uh, they're trying. Everything is trying to be. They're trying to do everything at once, and with the hope that it gets to net zero. They're not trying to, you know, reduce. They're not trying to. Well, that we've seen no signs at all that they're interested in um, rolling back on the airport expansion plans, on the road building plans. Um, so, you know, we know that, as I said earlier, that the fossil fuel companies are planning to increase their production as well of fossil fuels. Um, so, um, so business as usual, obviously, you know, this sort of what the, the kind of solutions we're hearing coming out of uh, government and uh, business, big business is obviously not going to work. So it, it feels quite demoralizing for the kind of people like, like me and probably like you as well, Anthony where um we want to sort of make changes here and now we want to sort of work with people to make to make improvements and uh you know i'm, I'm very involved in community energy 
And that's kind of now it suddenly seems like a very small contribution, you know, a very small difference you can make by coming together as a as a town or a village and doing something uh, on that scale to uh, to to decarbonize the electricity supply or to insulate houses because of the scale of the problem we face. It now seems uh, totally out of whack. But um, I also think that the answer to this problem of the Green New Deal being so so large and such a huge amount of work that needs to be done by the state on people is actually that it needs to be done at community level and built up from there with state support rather than coordinated as a kind of a you know top down street by street the government in you know will install insulation in your street on this tuesday in december and that's it all right well where do we go from here um, in particular, where do the militant activists go from here? Yes, well, that's it, isn't it? Because as this middle ground gets eroded away, you do get more radicalization on both sides. You'll get a, an entrenchment, like we're seeing in social media, like we're seeing in society so widely, you're getting an entrenchment around the status quo. People are resisting, uh, you know, which for our current government is doing very well, is resisting things like demands to uh, to, to halt road building, reduce uh, airport expansion, and, uh, you know, not build coal mines, not, build, not open up new oil fields. And uh, on the other hand, then that means that the radicals are just going to get more radical and more sort of feisty. And today, you know, we saw today, uh, was it nine uh, insulated Britain activists were jailed. And it's hard to see that given the rhetoric of the climate justice movement and the total absence of any kind of, um, you know, honourable response to that, it's hard to see that it's not just going to get more radicalized, more polarized, and you're going to see a new generation of, uh, of climate activists taking increasingly radical action. The energy and the clarity coming from the young, the young protesters is, um, you know, it's it's inspiring. Unless unless the uh, the state does change, does make radical change, I think that the the demands of the climate justice movement are going to be. Are not, are not going to nearly be met. People are very alive to the injustices that happen, uh, you know, in, in our current system. Mm. When you look at what the, the solutions proposed are, you know, the carbon markets that, um, you know, Shell is going to be net zero uh, by 2030. You know, this is this is a big tick, apparently. But then you look at what they're saying. Well, they want to buy an area of they want to plant an area of forests three times the size of the Netherlands in order to offset their emissions. And I mean, you know, land is not, there is not an infinite amount of land that you can plant up with trees, you know. So all of these claims, the same with Drax, all of these claims, when you start unpicking them, they don't really hold up. So this is why net zero is, is such a tricky issue. And, I, you know, we really need to be setting targets on emissions reduction, in my opinion, and not just saying, oh, well, so long as it works out at zero at the end, that's fine. What I've been saying for a long time is that the government ought to have a public information campaign. But the trouble is the government won't have a public information campaign if it's not committed to the sort of things that it ought to have a public information campaign about. So true enough. And I would say that the government is well served by a kind of constructive ambiguity around the whole situation. I mean, there is an awful lot of there will be an awful lot of details and an awful lot of regulations that will be extremely hard to, to pin down. Yeah. The things like, I mean, you know, you, you'll have heard the scope one, two and three emissions, you know, the, the kind of the kind of regulations that means Drax gets to be called a renewable energy source, uh, even though, you know, it, it's 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 changing large swathes of forests, it's altering the character of the land in different places. But that doesn't turn up here. Um, 
more obvious example perhaps is incineration so waste incineration gets gets branded as a renewable energy source for for uh, electricity so energy from waste is theoretically renewable so it so when you look at your uh, carbon emissions and your your the percentage of renewables on the grid then you know it doesn't matter what you're burning that's that's the the magic of of regulation is that you can take a a plastic mcdonald's happy meal figurine made out of oil but the minute you throw it in the bin and ship it off to an incinerator suddenly it's renewable there are so many aspects to all of this and i think every solution throws up its own problems which is so frustrating but uh yeah we could talk all night about this but I, we haven't got that much time so before we close I've got to ask you, are you optimistic? Um, I probably am no more optimistic than I was going into it. It didn't, there was a little while toward the beginning when you thought, oh, it might be doing something good. You know, with the, the deforestation pledge came out, the loss and damage and the mention of fossil fuels all put in there. You thought, okay, it might be a small step forward. But then the detail emerges and it goes through the process and these things get taken out again. So I did, so no, coming out of it, I have, like many people I know, I mean, a lot of people I know are feeling very, very low right now um, because it doesn't seem like uh, the governments, that the rich and that the powerful of the world are doing what it's going to take to keep us safe. So what will you do next? Um, there's, that's a big question. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am a member of my local Extinction Rebellion group um, and, uh, you know, I'm so I'm, I'm I am uh, taking action in that sense i mean it, it's it is the best antidote for climate despair is climate activism it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter if you're just handing out leaflets on the street deal with a group of like-minded people trying to make some difference however small that really is the best uh remedy for climate anxiety that i and many other people have found obviously if, any, if anyone's got any other suggestions then you know i'd be interested um but yeah uh that's that's what i'll be doing i think um and i'm, conti I'm continuing to, to support community energy and we're trying to establish a, a means of uh you know community level um renewables and uh house in, uh, insulation retrofit and so on here in york so i'll be i'll be carrying on with that but um perhaps with a with a slightly diminished reserves of hope for the short term well richard thank you very much for sharing your thoughts ideas and experiences with us that's uh covered a great deal some quite profound ideas there um we're well we're going to be talking about this for a long long time to come thanks again thank you thanks to richard lane and thanks to you for listening this far this episode is much longer than i had intended but i thought it was useful to hear what someone who has actually been to cop 26 had to tell us about it the Sustainable Futures Report aims to be topical, so I can't tell you what I should be talking about next Friday. I will almost certainly be talking about Insulate Britain. As you heard there, nine activists have now been sent to prison. Extinction Rebellion said the government would rather lock up pensioners than insulate homes. They would rather lock up young people than implement practical solutions to reducing emissions. We're in a crisis. It's time for warm homes, not warm words. There will be another interview next Wednesday, and this time you'll hear about Tales from Mother Earth and Green Jumper Day. Yes, it's Green Jumper Day on Friday the 26th. What's all that about? Well, you'll have to listen and find out. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend, and why not take a moment to sign up and become a patron? I know I mentioned it before, but I really value my patrons, 
and I'd love you to become one of them if you aren't already. Just go to patreon.com sfr and you'll find all the details there. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Until next time.